When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to Inside the Times and the Sunday Times, and I'm your host, Emma Tucker. Deputy Editor of The Times. Today's story focuses on the hidden role of the UK government in forced marriages. So, Paul, thanks for coming to talk to us today. I wanted to start by asking you why you decided to delve into forced marriages again, because I think it's fair to say that a lot's already been written on this subject. It's definitely true that forced marriage is an issue that's been written about before. The government's tried to prevent it happening. For those who don't know, forced marriages in the UK usually involve a young girl, usually a teenager, being taken abroad by her family, often to South Asia, and married off. And often she'll be kept out there, raped, forced to become pregnant, and will only be allowed home once she's pregnant to then sponsor the visa for her husband to join her back in the UK. After reading a number of features about this and kind of personal stories, it just struck me that I couldn't understand how the husbands were getting into the UK. And I felt like that aspect of it the aspect about the government's involvement and what the government could be doing more to stop it had never been explored properly. OK, so how did you get started on, on the story? How did you sort of go about establishing what the government's role was? I mean, I think a lot of people have the idea of investigations that you kind of get a tip off in the pub or, you know, a source comes forward or, you know, these things happen. So, th- so this one happened a bit differently in that it was just an idea based on reading other things. So I kind of just started straight from the beginning as if I knew nothing about it and had never written, read about it before and called every campaigner, every charity I could find and just started conversations, started meeting them and hearing what they had to say. Because when often you start investigations, could be that there's a really simple answer and actually something that you suspect is happening, there's no problem there. And then you move on to something else. So in this case, I just started those conversations. Why do you think no one had looked into this before? I mean, it, it often seems to me that some of the best journalistic stories are staring us in the face. I completely agree. I think often... In my opinion, the best investigations are ones that hone in on a subject where there's been suspicion before, but no one's got to the bottom of it. We've all thought this might be happening, and it's kind of said anecdotally. And and that's exactly what happened here. When I started speaking to the campaigners, and there was one in particular who was just brilliant, Jasvinda Sangira from a charity called Carmen Habana, and I spent ages with her, and she said they kept hearing this over the years from victims. They kept hearing that they had got in touch, either themselves or through a charity, to the Home Office, and they told them it was a forced marriage. But then the man would arrive in the UK, he got a visa, and then often the victim goes quiet because they've tried to help themselves and they've been let down. So she'd heard that anecdotally, and, you know, that just sparked my interest even more. This was something people did know about but had never been proven. 
So obviously a lot of the story was about uh, the role that victims played and the victims' families played in, in getting these husbands back into the UK. How did you go about finding victims that were willing to talk to you? Because obviously it's a very sensitive subject, this. Yeah, so the, the charities were a very helpful first port of call and they often do have victims they work with who will speak to you. And so I started speaking to those victims or, you know, often they'll be referred to as survivors and their stories were incredible. Often they were a bit more historical though. So they'd be, it would have happened to them 10 years ago for them to be willing to work with a charity on press stuff. Usually it's happened to them, you know, 10, 15 years ago. They've got through that initial trauma. They've managed to come out of the relationship away from their families and now they're willing to talk. So I started with those conversations. But what I really needed to prove what it was, is that it was still happening now, which is what the suspicion was. So how did you go about establishing that? Sometimes the charities would put me in touch with other people. So one woman who was incredible, incredibly helpful was a court expert who deals with these cases now. And she was able to then start kind of facilitating conversations between cases she has. And those conversations would, you know, they had to be dealt with very sensitively and very carefully. But also one in particular fell through. And it this was a, eventually I got speaking to a guy who was a police officer who dealt with forced marriages and he had recently resigned but I was put in touch with him he still had a lot of knowledge in the area and he was in touch with one girl who wanted to speak and he kept saying to me she's almost ready text me in a week text me in another week and it kept almost happening in the end actually I never spoke to her because that one she never felt able to speak so that was one that fell through did you know how old she was she was in her mid-twenties. I didn't know many details about her at all. We, obviously, the people who were putting me in touch with victims had to be very, very careful. How helpful were the police, other than this, this one that had just resigned? Were they in any way helpful? No, I mean, they, you can't just kind of call up the police and they'll put you in touch with a victim. You have to go about it in a, in a, I guess, a kind of more careful way through different sources. Once you start, in my experience, once you start going through police press offices, it all becomes very official. And the only victims you'd be able to speak to are historic ones. So once you had the charities and the case studies, did you feel that that was enough or did you feel you needed more to really copper bottom the investigation? Well, because the interviews took a while to come about, there was time in between. So I, start, I had the idea that potentially there might be some court records that would expose that this has happened, official records. So another way of proving it was by going down that route and there's an online database of court records and I started trawling through them, going through kind of cases over the past 20 years. And what that showed was there were cases, quite a number, where forced marriage victims, eventually there'd been intervention where, you know, some abuse had happened in the UK, but they'd mentioned in passing in these judgments that the husband had managed to come to the UK even though the visa office knew that it was a forced marriage. And it, I kept seeing it in the records. And actually, this is where another part of the investigation came from because the victims in these cases that were in the courts were often severely disabled. So another part of a kind of a cultural practice that experts talk about in particularly Asian communities is disabled children that families not wanting to trust the state to look after them, so finding a match for them. The idea is that they have a carer for life, but often these arrangements go terribly wrong and whether it's a man or a woman in the UK who's married off, they're in a very vulnerable position once they're married. So in these cases, even though the Home Office knew that the the person in the forced marriage could not possibly have consented to the relationship, they were allowing their spouses over to the UK. And then 
the courts were hearing about the awful abuse that was happening afterwards. Presumably you went to the Home Office with this information and, and challenged them on what you uncovered. And what was their response? At each stage, I kind of thought, is it ready? Has it been proven? I've got current victims. I've got historic victims. I've got court records over 20 years, but I wanted an official document that showed it. And there was this term that kept coming up in my conversations about reluctant sponsors. There was this legal problem at the centre of the centre of this issue that the charities were talking about, where if a victim comes forward, so she's she's been taken abroad, she's been forced to get married, she's brought back to the UK to sponsor the visa. If she then gets in touch with the Home Office, she has to sign a statement that says, I want to object to this visa. But that can be seen by the applicant. So essentially, they're waiving their anonymity. And in no other area do we expect victims of abuse to waive their anonymity. However, in this case, you have to. It's the immigration laws. And charities were talking about how this has been an issue they've talked about for a while and nothing has happened. But when someone comes forward and won't sign one of these statements, the Home Office categorises them as a reluctant sponsor. And over the years, they've developed things that they do. So, for instance, they, if they know it's a reluctant sponsor, they will try and find a conviction, let's say, in the applicant's home country to find an excuse not to allow them in. But it, it wasn't good enough. People were still getting in. So I started, I put in freedom of information request to the Home Office because I wanted to nail down how many reluctant sponsor cases they had dealt with and in how many cases the applicant had still come to the UK. Because that would be the complete proof, the key document that would show that we're letting in people that we know are abusers into the UK and, f- and the government would be facilitating forced marriages. So at this point in the investigation, how, how much time had elapsed? How long were you working on it? So before this interview, I looked back over my notes and the first FOI I put in on this subject was in February 2018. And I didn't get the final key document that I was after until June 2018. So that was four months. By law, government departments have to respond to you with an answer within 20 working days. However, anyone who has put these in will know that you are stopped at every opportunity. So my initial questions, there were quite a lot of them covering, you know, years and years. After 20 days, they got back to me and said, too much information. There's a time limit as to the amount of work we have to put into an answer to an FOI. We're not giving you any information. It went down and down until finally, all I was asking for was last, the year before, 2017, how many reluctant sponsor cases and how many of these visas were approved. And they eventually came back with the figure, this key document, which was a list of 88 cases from 2017, where the Home Office were told it was a forced marriage case, either because a victim had come forward herself or a charity had come forward or simply a Home Office official suspected it was a forced marriage because of their training. So 88 of these cases. And as you went down the list, it kept saying, issued, issued, issued. In total, there were 42 of them where the visas were issued and that was last year. So in other words, nearly half of the total number of forced marriages that the Home Office knew about in 2017 were approved? Yes. When when the Home Office came back to you, did they did they try to give you any sort of explanation or did they just serve you up the raw numbers? They served me up the numbers. Later, before publication, we always go to people for comment to make sure we have all the information and they have had a, a right to reply. That's, you know, a very... It's a standard thing in journalism. In this case, they came back and they were very keen to say this isn't, even though they're called reluctant sponsors, it's not just when women have come forward to try and block it themselves. There are other situations, for instance, when we suspect a forced marriage, but, you know, later we've become satisfied that it isn't a forced marriage. 
But firstly, after a lot of debate, they were happy to concede that, yes, obviously any case where a, a victim has come forward and we've given a visa is terrible. And secondly, because of all the other evidence I had that this was happening from the court records from the victims, that it really felt like we had everything we needed. But obviously there is another key part to this investigation which we haven't talked about, which involved somebody going undercover. Do you want to tell me why, we, why you felt that part of it was necessary and what it involved? Yeah, so the truth is at that point we could have published and there was debate about, you know, I spoke to my editor about it and there was discussion about whether we should publish. However, in the course of doing this, all this work to do with the reluctance once of visas to prove this was happening, one of the sources I spoke to tipped me off about a lawyer in Bradford who the allegation was that she was helping families after forced marriages to secure visas. And we could have done the story as it was, but it was just niggling at me. And I, I kept, it, it took a while actually to get the undercover work going. There's kind of legal processes you have to go through that are very careful. And also, this was a, usually I, I'll go undercover myself, but in this case, there was no way, I'm Caucasian, I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s, I couldn't have been, ideally I wanted the father of the you know someone who looked like the father of a girl to go in and speak to this lawyer. So it took me a while actually. There were a few different potential undercover reporters until we found the right one who was able to do it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And who was that? I mean, you can't tell us, obviously, but how did you find the right one? Can you give us a, a, a broad brush description? Well, initially, I just started out by speaking to contacts, other journalists who I felt I could trust, particularly, actually, journalists from a production company who had done undercover work before. They were very helpful and put me in touch with a guy who had done this kind of work before. The reporter had to speak Urdu, and this guy spoke Urdu. However, when I got in touch with him, it turned out he was from Bradford, and it was all too close to home. 
and he was worried about being recognised and things like that. He then put me through to someone else who was brilliant and we met a couple of times and he was going to do it. And then at the last moment, this guy's a freelance journalist and was sent out to Gaza. So that kind of scuppered everything. Anyway, the second one put me in touch with the third guy who was then brilliant. And But still, it's very you've got to trust the yeah. other reporter if they're going in. So I went to his home. I spent a day with him. We actually did the initial calls to this lawyer together from his home. I wanted to make sure that I could watch him in action and make sure I could trust him. And he was great. And then we organised the meeting in Bradford with this lawyer and went up together. And that's when the meeting happened. So you'd agreed in advance what it was you wanted, the questions you wanted him to ask, uh, what you were hoping to elicit from it, as well as establishing that you trusted him. Yes, and also just simply him understanding his cover story. He was going in saying that he was the father of two girls, one who was in her late teens and had already been married in Pakistan, an arranged marriage that she wasn't happy about, and was now pregnant and wanted to come home wanted to get away from this man but he wanted the marriage to continue in the UK and for the man to to come over to the UK without his daughter's permission and then a second daughter who was 15 and he was going to say that he wanted her to get married as well which obviously is illegal. Were you very anxious on the morning that he went in to see the lawyer? I'd got to a point where I did trust him so I wasn't worried about him and the questions he'd ask or whether he'd do it in the right way. He also is an undercover reporter with lots of experience. However the big anxiety I always get when you go undercover is that the footage won't work and you have this moment where so we use the shirt camera where there's a little camera in the second button down of your shirt which captures the person you're you're speaking to how visible is it you can't I mean I could be wearing one now and I don't think you is, notice. is that just as an aside is that something that you own is it part of your armory as an investigative reporter or do you rent them you can own them I've always preferred renting them because if you have a problem you've got an expert to speak to. And also, actually, it helps. In the past, in my career, I've had kind of complaints where someone who's been subject to a story has come forward and said, you've edited that footage, I didn't say that. You've, you know, accused us of something we didn't do. And it was very, very helpful to have an external company to say, we can confirm that is just how our footage works. The reporter has not tampered with this in any way. But you, so you have the camera, and that's connected down a wire, and there's a little pack and often it's good to wear a jacket so you can't see the pack. But you press the button and a light comes on so you know it's recording. But it's that kind of OCD thing where you the light's on, but you still think, was it definitely recording? So I was I drove to a certain point, dropped him off. He went for this meeting. Yeah, and she, she says in the video, she says to him, well, 15-year-olds can be ready for, for marriage if they're physically and mentally ready. She talks about how she totally understands that he wants to get this man into the UK even though his daughter doesn't want him to come and talks about a loophole he can use to get this man in without her knowledge. So I was waiting in my car and yeah, there is that anxiety. You think, God, what happens if he's in there and she's saying all these things and, and I don't know and it comes back and the footage doesn't work. And actually in this case, there was a massive panic afterwards because he came back and we switched off and it turned out it was recording and that was great. And he told me you know, anecdotally what she had said and it was exactly what we what we thought she might say and um, we got back to the hotel and I put it all on my laptop and I opened up the recording and after 30 seconds it froze and I just I just, I just couldn't believe it and that had never happened to me before anyway this was one of the benefits of dealing with an external company I called them they picked up straight away and it was a very boring issue where I'd opened it in the wrong type of player I needed to open it in Windows Media Player not VLC and I did that and it was all there and it was fine. So how did you feel when you actually saw the footage? 
the footage, I could see that it was brilliant. I could see that he'd got her in frame. He'd done everything perfectly. And anecdotally, he told me he the conversation was in a mixture of English and Urdu. So anecdotally, he was kind of telling me what had been said and he was translating it. But this is another thing I had to do afterwards is I was very keen on having the whole thing just totally independently translated. I trust I trusted the reporter, but I needed to know for sure independently she was saying what he said she was saying. And that was all fine. So meanwhile, you had your footage, you had the evidence, you had the information from the charities, the FOIs, the case studies. How did you go about building the, the, the package? And, and what was, at what point did you bring in your editors or did you sort of escalate the fact that we had this big story? I was talking to I mean, my kind of direct boss at the time, Jeremy Griffin, who's the executive editor. I was having conversations with him about it throughout. But there is still always the slight anxiety that when you then pitch it to the editor, John Witherow, for some reason he might not think it's that important or he might decide that on the, that actually there's something more important we should be... And, and you, that always niggles at you and you think, I need to pitch this in the right way. And you talk about the day... We actually did split it out over days. So day one was the kind of basic story about the government issuing visas in these known forced marriage cases and with case studies with the women's terrible personal experiences. And then we decided to keep the victims with disabilities for the second day. So we had a ready-made second day of coverage. Were you under pressure to publish earlier or were you able, did you feel that you were able to publish at the right time? Because sometimes you hear journalists being pushed, in, pushed to publish when they're not quite ready. Or I mean, I wonder if that happened in this instance. It didn't. And actually, that is without blowing our own trumpets too much. That I, I moved to The Times at the beginning of 2018. And it was something I've really noticed is whilst there is pressure to publish, there is always a proper discussion about the reasons to hold it not to do it yet and there was total understanding from my editors that we would do it when it was ready and I was so glad because we could have done it before the undercover work and the undercover work was really crucial it worked you know it was important online for people to see the video and there there are currently ongoing investigations into what we found by authorities so it was an important thing to do. So as, as we got closer to publication day, perhaps give listeners an, a sense of the, the, the numbers of different people involved in publishing a big package like this. So with something like this, I initially, it's a part of my job that I, I really enjoy. I kind of will sit down with everything I have and then try and plan it over the few days and decide you know, you think thematically about what goes together, what will look right in the paper together. Is there a balance of, there's the FOI statistical stuff, but are there also the case studies on day one to go with that? So I enjoy that process and I'll come up with a list covering like two or three days, whatever it is for that, for that investigation. And then I'll run that by Jeremy, my editor, who my kind of direct boss, who will then might tweak a few things. I then, I had a conversation with you, with um, the news desk. So separately, there's there are news editors who sit around a desk and they will there are they are the reporters bosses who manage what they do and it was important there's a news editor on the day of publication he needed to know all about it the head of news on the day of publication who sits above the news desk she needed to know all about it so the head of news that day was brief i briefed her as well usually i wouldn't go into news conference Every day there's a meeting news conference where the news editor will pitch all the news stories that day and all the different sections will pitch stories as well. But actually that day I did go in. There were so many different elements to the story. It felt a lot to leave the news editor with all of that without any help. And then obviously you were also working closely with our video team because that was critical to the package. Our lawyers, the, the picture editor. Yes, yeah, so I had meetings beforehand with 
the, a picture editor to go through all the pictures we had. I had lots of meetings with the video team to make sure they had all the footage that was edited correctly. Actually, there was a lot of back and forth because I wanted to be really careful with this, with the editing and the subtitles with the Urdu. So every time they did a new edit, I would send that to the translation company to recheck everything. And there were a few tweaks along the way and that had to be done. So you kind of have to think early. That was being done about two weeks before publication, the video stuff, whereas the meeting with the picture editor can be a couple of days before. And then there were also lawyers are crucial. Anything undercover, complicated investigations. I was dealing with lawyers throughout from begin from before. You can't simply go undercover. You have to have approval from lawyers before you do that at the first stage. So they 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 were aware of it throughout the process. What was the impact of the story when it was published? Well, when when you get to publication, there is always that anxiety that I've worked on this for so long. I think it's really important, and but you can get lost in your own story and you don't really know. So there is that kind of, it's published, will anyone care? And actually, I have a bit of a gauge, which is at home. I think everyone does this after work at home. You you go home and you talk about your day at work. And I can tell with my husband, who is pretty brutal when it comes to my investigations, there are times I'll tell him what, what I'm working on and he's not listening. He's watching the telly, he's on his phone. And at every stage during the forced marriage investigation, he just wanted to know more. And he was fascinated. And so he was a bit of a gauge. And I thought, he's interested. That's a good sign. But I didn't know. In the end, the the pickup was brilliant. And, and it was running on Sky News all for the next couple of days. And it was on the radio. And the campaigners were brilliant. They took it as an opportunity to go on TV and talk about it. Some of the victims went on TV. And what, and what role did you play in promoting the story? Well, I was very careful. I, I was wanted to make sure the campaigners I'd been speaking to and some of the older victims who had got to a point where they were able to go on television knew the day it was coming up we have a PR team at the times who spoke to some of the broadcasters to see if they'd be interested and passed on with permission the details of some of the people who are willing to go on television sometimes you do all that all, all of that and broadcasters aren't interested but they were very keen on doing the story and then crucially it politically there was an impact two months after we ran the investigation Sajid Javid the home secretary announced at the Tory party conference that they would rewrite the um immigration rules to make sure that victims can now give evidence in secret to block their husbands from coming to the UK. So that was a really important victory for us. Um, And now a team of legal experts is working on the exact details to make sure that can happen. So obviously part of your role now is to keep a to keep a very close watch on what the legacy of this story will be and make sure that we report any and also continue to hold the home office to account. Absolutely we are keeping pressure on the home office to make sure that they are going to stick to their word and we also actually have run a separate investigation a follow-up investigation um campaigners off the first investigation they came forward and told me that victims were being charged for the cost of their repatriation. So if a girl was sent abroad, if she managed before the forced marriage to get in touch with authorities um, and, and get saved, those victims were then being charged by the Foreign Office for their flights, for food that they were given after they were saved, for their shelter. Um, any over 18 who couldn't pay were made to take out emer- emergency loans, uh, had their passports confiscated, and if they didn't repay the loans in six months, then 10% was added. I think rightly, people were very outraged by this. We had victims that spoke out. We had kind of proof because we again got documents under the Freedom, Freedom of Information Act. And within a week, Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary, had stopped the charges. So that was that was a real result for us. But 
you know, more people continue to come forward. And we're working on some other things at the moment, but uh, continuing also to work on this theme. Well, Paul, we really can't wait for the next one. But anyway, thank you very much uh, for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. This has been produced by Alexis Sogal and Sam Joyner. Additional research was done by James Stannard. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.